Well, it's certainly no lie that the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is, is perhaps the most scandalous assertion in all of history. There is, there is no assertive fact other than Jesus is risen that causes more people to fall into scandal, to be, uh, uh, to be bothered or offended by that statement. Certainly it is scandalous. After all, what man in his right mind would claim to be the son of God born of a virgin? What man in his right mind can maintain that, that his existence is one and the same with the God who created the universe? What sane man could say that all of the Hebrew scriptures and their promises are fulfilled in him and in no one else? What sane man could declare that he would be put to death and then physically rise from the dead three days later, never to die again? And yet it's these claims, these specific claims that all Christians affirm and believe precisely because Jesus has been raised from the dead. That is to say, Christians, we don't believe in the resurrection because of Jesus' seemingly unbelievable statements and claims. Rather, we believe the unbelievable claims because of the reality of the resurrection. That very phrase, though, the reality of the resurrection, does tend to rub some people the wrong way. After all, how many of you, by show of hands, have ever seen a person die and then dead for three days, rise again, uh, never to die again? Not none of us, right? None of us have seen that with our own eyes. So then how can we speak of the resurrection as a reality? How is it that we can hold tightly to such a unique and specific and supernatural position? I think it's precisely because we have good reason to. We hold to this belief that Christ is risen from the dead because there's good reason to believe it. The basis for our faith that Jesus is risen and the cause of our celebration and our worship on this day specifically comes to us by way of a reasonable faith that is founded on the reliable testimony of many witnesses. And the story of these witnesses is given to us in the Gospels. It's also given to us by by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 as we read to begin our service today, but most clearly and specifically in the Gospels. Now, we don't want to be here until 2 o'clock this afternoon, so for the sake of our time today, we're just going to look at the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24. We can look at all four if you want to, um, by show of hands. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, let's vote on how many of the Gospels we look at today. We're going to look just at Luke chapter 24 and the good reason that there is for us to believe that Christ is risen. Just from Luke chapter 24, let us look first at the testimony of the women. The testimony of the women, verses 1 through 12. This is what the Word of the Lord says. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, that is, uh, the, the women that we'll see in a moment, taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how, he, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, on the, and, be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it is this group of women that are recounted as those who first see the empty tomb, and those who first receive the news that Jesus had been raised from the dead. 
As we explore the reliability of the testimony of these women, we find at least two things. Their testimony is reliable and trustworthy for at least two things. First of all, the women saw him dead and laid in the tomb. Look at Luke chapter 23, verses 55 and 56, just, just right before the passage we just read. It says, The women who had come with him, with Jesus from Galilee, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Now, while all of Jesus's male disciples, except for the disciple John, fled, they ran away during Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. It was the women who followed him, that, who followed him in Galilee that stayed nearby the entire time. They're the ones at the foot of the cross watching their Jesus die. These women watched his life leave him. They saw him wrapped and laid in a tomb. They accompanied Joseph of Arimathea to the place where Jesus' body was placed, and they saw the stone rolled in front of the covering of the tomb. With full confidence that Jesus was dead, the women went and did what people do for dead folks. They set about preparing embalming spices to treat the body, to treat Jesus' body after the Sabbath was over. So not only did they see Jesus die, but also, secondly, the women expected him to still be dead. They expected him to still be dead. Between the day of Jesus' death and his resurrection is the Sabbath day. Now, for Jews, the Sabbath day, it's the seventh day of the week, Saturday, is a day of holy rest on which no work is to be done. So the women didn't go to the tomb that day. They followed the, 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 Jewish, uh, the Jewish law to, to revere the Sabbath. And so the women observed that day. And then on Sunday, the first day of the week, they went back to the tomb to apply their prepared spices to the body of Jesus. Now, women who are not expecting to find a dead body to dress, do not logically arrive at a tomb with spices for the embalming of a dead body. They went to the tomb that day fully expecting Jesus to still be dead. In fact, even verse 4 says, when they saw that the tomb was empty, they were perplexed about this. They were confused about what was going on. Why would they be confused? Because they expected Jesus to still be dead. They who had expected a dead body were rightly confused about what had happened to the body of Jesus. The massive stone covering the entrance was moved away. And and there in the place of Jesus, the only living beings present are two angels who say to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified and on the third day rise? These angels are reminding the women of what Jesus had said during his earthly ministry, of which Luke records uh, Jesus saying in Luke chapter 9, verses 21 and 22, the exact same words that we read, the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men, crucified, and on the third day rise. So what do the women do? On seeing the empty tomb, on hearing the, the word from the angels that are there, what do they do? They immediately leave the cemetery and run to tell all of the disciples who are still huddled away in the room that they had rented for the Passover. Why does this matter? Why does the testimony of these women at the tomb matter? Well, precisely because women 2,000 years ago in both Roman and Jewish society could not be considered legal witnesses. In those days, the testimony of a woman in legal proceedings was not considered valid or acceptable. Women could not testify in either Roman or Jewish courts and have their testimony counted for or against anyone. This begs the question then, why... If their testimony could not be trusted socially, culturally, why would all four Gospels, written by men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, why would they rely so heavily upon the initial witness of the women if indeed what the women had said was not true? 
If the testimony of a woman doesn't carry any, carry any weight in those days, why do the gospel writers rely so heavily upon the testimony of the women? It must be true. It must be true. They must have believed it was true. If the gospel writers are trying to falsify, they're trying to fake a resurrection, why would they not then choose more trustworthy witnesses from the start? Choose a Jewish ruling leader. Choose any man at that point. But they don't, right? They tell first the story of the witnesses. Well, let's assume that you, you don't believe just the testimony of the women at the tomb. Perhaps you, like the disciples, when the women went to tell them, respond to this claim of the risen Jesus with incredulity. You don't believe it. In fact, the disciples, too, knew that Jesus was really dead. And though he said he would rise again, it seems as though the disciples did not expect him to rise yet at this point. So then I would take you to the next testimony to consider. Consider also not just the testimony of the women, but also the testimony of the scriptures. The testimony of the scriptures. Look at verses 13 through 35 with me. There we read this. That very day, two of them, two of the disciples. Now, these are two. They're not counted among the 12. These are a, a part of a, a peripheral group of disciples. Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? I love Jesus' sense of humor. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of our women, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. And Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven. And those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now, in these verses, unlike the women before, these two disciples, one of whom is named Cleopas, who are not counted among the 12 disciples, they actually see and hear and speak and eat with the risen Jesus. And we'll get to that in better detail uh, in a moment as we look at verses 36, and, uh, 36 through 49. But here, I want us to draw our attention to the testimony that Jesus says has already been given about the resurrection. The testimony that came prior to the women, prior to these two disciples. Prior to any of these, Jesus says the scriptures, that is the whole Hebrew Bible, what we know as the Old Testament, was all pointing to and about him and precisely his resurrection. 
Now, this is not a new assertion by the risen Jesus. He is not now in his resurrection saying something new about the scriptures that he had never said before. In fact, Jesus himself spoke regularly about how the scriptures were and would be fulfilled in him. For instance, earlier in Luke chapter 4, verse 21, there Jesus in his earthly ministry, beginning his earthly ministry, goes to a synagogue and he reads from a scroll of the prophet Isaiah, which was written some 700 years before he was born. And after reading it, he says to the crowd, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled as I read this scroll to you even now. In John's gospel, John chapter 5, Jesus is talking with some Jews who are angry that he's healing people on the Sabbath. Remember that day of holy rest? The command to rest on the Sabbath came from God through Moses in Exodus chapter 20. And Jesus says in John chapter 5 verse 46 to these Jewish ruling leaders who are upset that he's healing people on the Sabbath. He says, if you had believed Moses, that is the lawgiver, you would have believed me for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? All that is to say that even the oldest of the Old Testament works, those written by Moses, are pointing to Jesus. Matthew in his gospel. We don't have time to survey all of this because more than any of the other gospel writers, Matthew speaks to Jesus fulfilling prophecy in his life. At least 21 times by my count, and that's not an official count, Matthew refers to specific prophecy that is fulfilled by Jesus or as a result of his ministry. That's the purpose of Matthew's gospel is to show Jewish believers in Jesus or or Jewish people who are not yet trusting in Jesus that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament that they loved, that they followed, that they believed. So we see that the risen Jesus then shows us how the resurrection sheds a clearer light on the prophecies of the Old Testament. His resurrection fulfills the Old Testament and also sheds a clearer light on the prophecies of the Old Testament. Prophecies like these, Genesis 3, verse 15, the first prophecies of a a, a Messiah who would come where God promises to send a serpent crusher who would defeat the effects of the first sin. That he would crush the head of the serpent and bring deliverance for mankind. In Genesis 12, 3 and 22, 18, God in his promise to Abraham promises a descendant through whom that, that would come through Abraham, through whom the whole world would be blessed by God. In Numbers chapter 21, 9, there as the people of Israel are wandering in the wilderness and they're disobeying God, God sends uh, a horde of venomous vipers upon the people to judge them, to punish them for their disbelief. Uh, The vipers are biting the people and many of them begin to die. And God gives instruction for Moses to uh, construct a bronze serpent, uh, an image of the thing that was killing the people, to raise it up on a staff and so that anyone who would look at the image of the thing that was killing them and believe they would be healed. And indeed they are. That very same uh, passage of Numbers chapter 21 quoted by Jesus in John chapter 3 when he meets with Nicodemus at night. He says, even as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 18. There the Lord promises through Moses a prophet like Moses but greater who would not just have a word from God but who have the very words of God in his mouth. Isaiah 7, 14, there the promise of a child who would be born of a virgin, who would be called Emmanuel, who is God with us. We understand Jesus to be the son of God, God in flesh, with us, among us, in a way unlike God had ever been before. Isaiah 53, 4 through 9, there we have the promise of a servant of God who would come to give his life and to suffer for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. 
Why does this matter? Why does the testimony of the scriptures matter when we think about the resurrection? Precisely because the specificity and completeness of fulfilled prophecy by Jesus is totally unique. There is none other like it. It has been calculated that the odds against one person fulfilling eight prophecies, um, eight messianic, eight promised uh, deliverer uh, prophecies from the Old Testament are astronomical. That is, that they are one in ten to the 21st power, okay, uh, of fulfilling just eight, just eight of those, one person. To illustrate that number, 1950s mathematician, uh, mathematics professor Peter Stoner gave the following example. He said, first, blanket the entire earth landmass with silver dollars 120 feet high. Second, specially mark one of those silver dollars and randomly bury it. Third, ask a person to travel the earth and select the marked dollar while blindfolded from the trillions of other dollars with only one shot. That's how likely it is for one person to fulfill only eight, only eight prophecies of the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't, doesn't fulfill only eight. He actually fulfills some 61 How then could Jesus and his disciples after him be so bold to claim over 300 times in the New Testament that Jesus has fulfilled not only eight, but 61 specific prophecies from the Old Testament about the Messiah, if indeed they knew that it was false? Rather, instead, what we find in the New Testament is that among its eight different authors, all of them refer to the specific ways in which Jesus and only Jesus fulfilled these prophecies, including his resurrection. The resurrection isn't just a good explanation for what happened to Jesus' body that day, but it explains the purpose and direction of God's work and his word in the 39 books of the Old Testament as well. If you want to know and see how Jesus is found throughout all of Scripture, I would encourage you to come to our fourth Sunday night um, uh, worship series. We're going to have that next Sunday evening at 5 o'clock. And what we do in that time is we study whole books of the Bible all at once to see how Christ is woven in and through all of Scripture. That's actually the name of the series, Woven, right? So there's a little shameless plug. Come worship with us next Sunday night. We're going to look at the Gospel of John next Sunday night. But, but all throughout John, there are pointings to the Old Testament of how Jesus Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. So come and see how Jesus is there. Like, well, just see the evidence as we explore it together. But let's say, though, that today you still don't believe the witnesses of the women. Ah, they're just, they're crazy and can't trust them anyway. Let's say you don't buy that the Old Testament, I'm not saying you can't trust women. You can. They're, most women are probably more trustworthy than most men that I know. And you, so let's say you don't believe the witnesses of the women. You don't believe, you don't buy that the Old Testament is really pointing to Jesus. And that he only accidentally fulfilled those prophecies. Let's, let's, let's all, all grant you that, that maybe Jesus just won off, right? Just, just random luck, right? Was a guy who fulfilled all of these prophecies. I'll give you that. And that the resurrection was just imagined or hallucinated, right? In that case, let me point you to the third testimony that we have in Luke chapter 24 today. The testimony of the disciples. Testimony of the women, testimony of the scriptures. Now the testimony of the disciples. Look at verses 36 through 53. As the disciples were talking about these things, that is the report of the women and the report of the two disciples along the road, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed him his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? 
They gave him a piece of bread and broiled fish, and he took it and he ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Sound familiar? Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, which, by the way, was the very city in which he was crucified. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. What we find here in verses 36 through 53 is a miraculous appearing of Jesus to the remaining 11 disciples as they gathered to hear the testimony of the two disciples on the road and to recall the testimony of the women just earlier. Now, we could here again speak of Jesus' reminder that his death and resurrection fulfilled prophecy as he does in verses 44 through 47. But I think there's an equally compelling element of this final appearance of Jesus that helps to dispel any presumption that his appearance was merely imagined or hallucinated by the disciples. That fact is that the vision of the risen Jesus was a shared experience. It was a shared experience. Now, hallucinations, by definition, are sensory perceptions experienced without actual stimuli. They are misfirings of your brain that trick you into believing that you are seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, or feeling something that isn't actually there. Hallucinations are inherently individualistic. That means they occur only within the mind of the, of the one individual who's experiencing that hallucination. And most of the time, they occur in only one, sometimes two, sensory forms. Most of the time, hallucinations are auditory or visual. Sometimes they are auditory and visual at the same time. But very rarely do, do hallucinations happen or occur in more than one uh, of, of our various senses at a time. Most of the time, right, it's just something that you hear that's not there or see or smell or taste that isn't really there. Knowing this, it would seem silly to say that the appearance of Jesus was a hallucination or a daydream of the disciples for at least two reasons. At least two reasons. First, the manner of his appearance is not merely auditory or visual, or even those two alone, but it's also kinesthetic. That is, there's moving there. He's walking with people on the road. It's tactile. They touch him. It's gustatory. That means it's taste-oriented. They eat with Jesus. The disciples see him, they hear him, they move with him, they touch him, they eat with him. This would have to be quite the hallucination to cause one person to believe that the event was real, much less 11 or more uh, individuals to believe that this very thing had taken place. Which leads us to our next point. The risen Jesus always appears in the context of groups in Luke. You see that? He always appears in the context of groups. It would be fairly easy for one individual to claim he had seen and heard Jesus privately appear to him, right? Who is there to dispel what he saw, right? Or to disavow what that one person saw. But it's another thing altogether for a person to claim he was, uh, that Jesus was appearing privately to him in the context of a number of other people, like, like what happened in the context of the disciples. But here in these verses, all of the disciples see and hear and touch and taste the same things at the same time in the presence of the risen Jesus, But remember, it's not just among these 11 that he appears to. He also appeared to two on the road at the same time. Not one, but two. 
Right? So there's, there's validation of what one or the other saw. In the same manner, there were even multiple women at the tomb who saw the same angels. Luke names three, but he says there were other women with them as well. In all of these cases, in any of these cases, all it would take would be one person among the group to discount the appearance to cause doubt among those who are hearing. Right? All it takes is one woman among those, that group to say, no, you guys, you guys are crazy. That's not there. Not seeing it. It's not happening. All it would take is one disciple, one of the two disciples on the road to say, nope, I didn't see any of that happen. I don't know what's wrong with you, dude. Cleopas, you're out of your mind. Right? All it would take is one of the 11 disciples to say, what are you guys looking at? What are you seeing? There's nothing here. And yet we don't have that happening. We have the opposite. In every single case throughout the New Testament, there is, there is no... By anyone who saw Jesus physically, among a group of people, there is not a one who discounts or, who, or disavows what actually happened. It is this very real appearance of the risen Jesus that then serves for the disciples as the catalyst for their ministry. Because they saw him, because their, their uh, experience with the risen Jesus is validated by several other witnesses, they are, they are shot off into ministry to proclaim that Jesus has risen from the dead. And thinking of their ministry, I would ask you to consider just the various aspects of the disciples' ministry in the first century and the church's ministry in the first century. First of all, their ministry is public. None of the disciples ever claims that the risen Jesus appeared to them privately, only always publicly. More than that, the ministry of the disciples in Acts occurs primarily in public. They're standing on street corners and in large forums, preaching the gospel to large groups of people. And it happens in the very city where Jesus was crucified just weeks before. If ever there was a city to discredit the claims that Jesus was raised from the dead, it was Jerusalem. The people of the city could have said to the disciples, you guys are nuts. He's dead. There's the tomb. There's his body. Roll away the stone. Bring out the corpse. We'll show you. You guys are crazy. But instead what we see are crowds of people who witnessed Jesus die and then just 50 days later, believing he is risen and trusting him as Lord. Eyewitnesses to the crucifixion, turning and just a few days later, believing that Christ is risen. So the ministry of the disciples is public, which, by the way, so is Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry was performed in front of large crowds constantly. There are always people around him, watching him, listening to him. So the stories that the disciples tell, that Matthew, Mark, that the gospel writers tell, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about Jesus could easily be refuted by any of, any of the, the thousands of people that heard Jesus speak, and yet they aren't. So their ministry is public. It's also peaceful. The ministry of the disciples is peaceful. The growth and the movement of Christianity in the first 300 years of its existence after Jesus uh, was risen, occurred very peacefully. Christians did not hold themselves away in bunkers, you know, apart from society. And neither did they form militias to overthrow the government or to coerce people into believing that Jesus was Lord. Instead, the earliest church grew not by force, but through peaceful preaching and loving care within the community of believers. And it didn't just grow, it exploded. It exploded through peaceful means. Their ministry was public, it was peaceful, it's also powerful. We read all through the book of Acts, which is Luke's sort of volume two in his history of Jesus and the disciples. All through the book of Acts, how the disciples go in spiritual power with the gospel of Jesus, proclaiming uh, repentance from sin and belief in Christ for salvation. They heal the sick and the disabled. They include the outcasts. They cast out demons. And they make bold defenses of the risen Jesus to governors and emperors. 
so quickly and decisively was the gospel of Jesus' death for sin and his resurrection from the dead moving through Jerusalem in those early days that Peter and the apostles were eventually arrested and charged not to speak the gospel anymore. Not just to say that Jesus was risen. They said, we don't want any of the gospel. None of what Jesus had to say, especially that he was risen. But as those men, Peter and the apostles, stand before the Jewish ruling council, one of the Jewish ruling council's own, a Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel, said this, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas, just a man named Theudas, rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean, this is not Judas Iscariot, but Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, and he drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you this. Keep away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And what is the history of the church? In the, in the absence of the body of Jesus, did the earliest disciples flee and run and give up their story and find some other Messiah to follow? No, they held steadfastly to what they had seen and heard and experienced, to what they believed. And as a result, the gospel explodes in the known world. It was a powerful movement, a powerful movement that is unlike any other and cannot be described or, or explained any other way. Fourth and finally, though, the, disciples, the, the ministry of the disciples and that of the early church. And, and, the reason we have good, and part of the reason we have good reason to believe Christ is risen is because the disciples in the early church were persecuted, yet the ministry preserved. Right? They were persecuted, but the gospel was preserved. We have not only to look at the persecution of the church in the book of Acts, which happens very quickly uh, as soon as they begin, as soon as the disciples begin proclaiming the gospel, but also we can look at the annals of Roman history under the reign of Emperor Nero from 54 to 65 AD as he persecuted the Christians for their faith all throughout the Roman Empire. Bear in mind that these disciples, whose ministry was based upon their assertion that Christ was risen, all of them, except for John, the, the disciple who died in exile in the Isle of Patmos, they all died horrible deaths at the hands of Jews and Romans for their belief that Christ was risen and for their preaching that faith in Jesus was the only way to be forgiven of sins and made right with God, their creator. Someone who has been told a convincing lie may so commit himself to what he wrongly believes is true, even so much as to die for it. You can be conned into believing something is true so much so that you would give your life for it. But it is the rarest of events where a liar would die for his own lie. Friends, some lies are just too big to tell. Now, the disciples, the first ones to proclaim that Jesus was risen from the dead, they really saw him. They really touched him. They really ate with him and watched him ascend into heaven. What other plausible explanation is there for their willingness to give their lives for the gospel that they preached if they knew that it was false? None of the disciples gained anything from a supposed con that Jesus had risen from the dead. Not one of them were rich. Not one of them were famous by worldly standards. Not one of them was amassing major crowds and benefiting from them. In fact, what we see is the opposite. They're teaching people to be generous with what they have, to give things away, right? To, to practice sexual purity and celibacy before marriage. 
They're not taking money from people, but instead they're, they're receiving money from people and then dispersing it to others who have need. The disciples gain nothing from this supposed lie that they may have told about Jesus. There's no motive here. Because there's no motive, it leads us to believe that they really believed that they had seen and heard and touched and walked and ate with the risen Jesus. Let's say you're still skeptical. The witnesses of the women, the, the testimony of the scriptures, the testimony of the disciples and of the early church. Let's say you're still skeptical. As we in a society that tends to be skeptical, you, you are. You may believe, as atheist author Richard Dawkins says, nobody, who know, nobody knows who the four evangelists were, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But they almost certainly never met Jesus personally. Much of what they wrote was in no sense an honest attempt at history. The Gospels are ancient fiction, says Richard Dawkins. If that's where you fall today, if that's what you, you believe, you, you, you fall in line with Richard Dawkins, consider the following facts that you have to have in order to have a better explanation uh, than the resur- a better explanation than the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. Consider these things that you need to have a better explanation for. You have to have a better explanation for the empty tomb. Jesus was a pivotal character in history. There's not a serious historian in all of the world that would deny that Jesus actually existed. That he taught, that people followed him, that some thought he was the Messiah. Whether you believe he was the son of God or not, he lived and he died a very public death. Where's the body? The, the, the Jews, after the resurrection of Jesus, you can read this at the end of Matthew's gospel. They couldn't come up with the body, so they paid Roman guards to tell a lie that the disciples had stolen it. They, they didn't have an explanation for the empty tomb. So you have to have a better explanation than the disciples stole the body for the empty tomb. Secondly, you have to have a better explanation than what we read in the Gospels and in Acts for the explosion of Christianity on the world scene. Just weeks, not, not years, not decades, weeks, days after Jesus died in the same city where he was executed, a movement arose among people believing he was raised from the dead. When all that was necessary to quell the growth of Christianity was to produce the body of Jesus, no one could. And because they couldn't, Christianity exploded. It exploded. So you have to have a better explanation for the empty tomb. You have to have a better explanation for the explosion of Christianity. But third and finally, you have to have a better explanation for the deaths of the disciples. Every one of them went to their deaths. Most of of them very gruesome. Impaled on stakes, crucified upside down, skinned alive, tortured and then beheaded. And and they received these deaths, not just for preaching the gospel of the risen Jesus, but because they would not stop preaching the gospel of the risen Jesus, even under threat of death. There's an early Roman uh, around the year, I think, 112 A.D., so not even 100 years after Jesus, a Roman governor named Pliny. And in his area, Christianity was exploding, and he didn't know what to do with all of these Christians. They weren't really causing a problem, but he saw potential that they could uh, overturn or or undermine sort of the the ruling spirituality of of Roman mythology in in the area so as to uh, bring people to confess uh, more and more and more that Christ was Lord and not Caesar. 
Pliny wrote to the emperor Trajan at that time saying, I don't know what to do with these Christians. Do you have any advice? He says, here's what I do, and you tell me if it's good or bad. I have them arrested. I question them once. Do you, do you confess that Jesus is Lord? And they say yes. And so I torture them a little bit, and then I ask them a second time, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? And they say yes, and so I torture them a little bit more. And then I ask them a third time, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? And if they say yes a third time, then I just kill them. Because I don't know what else to do with them. That is the extent to which Christians were holding to the faith that they had, that Christ was risen. It wasn't just the disciples, it was the church even after them. You've got to have a better explanation for why somebody would do that if they didn't believe it. Chuck Colson, who was a special advisor to President Nixon during the Watergate scandal, and who spent seven months in federal prison for his complicity in that plot. He says this about the resurrection. Now, in his time in prison, he came to know Christ and to trust Christ uh, and, and had a dramatic and, and profound uh, prison ministry out of that, uh, an evangelistic ministry even beyond that. He says this, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured if it were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me the apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. If you still doubt the the resurrection of Jesus... You've got to have a better explanation for why these men would give their lives over the course of 40 years and literally give their lives, die for preaching the gospel that Christ was risen and because they would not stop doing it. Christian today, you who are trusting in Jesus, you who know and who have known and have believed that the resurrection is true, rejoice today in the knowledge that your faith in Christ, that that he is risen, is well placed. Rejoice that you have good reason to believe that you're not crazy, that you're not mad as the world might tell you. You have good reason to believe that Christ is risen. And because he really is raised, your faith in him really does save you from your sin. This Resurrection Sunday, bask in the joy of knowing that God's grace really has set you free from sin to find your enjoyment in God. To do, to be who God has designed you to be. Worship today the God who defeated sin and death with hope for your own resurrection from the dead as well. This is a day of great rejoicing for Christians. Every Sunday is resurrection day. Every Sunday is a great day to rejoice in the fact that Christ is raised. But this day especially, rejoice that you have good reason to believe Christ is risen. You're not trusting a fairy tale. You're not believing an idle tale. You have good reason to believe this. But dear friend, you who are here today... You're not sure whether you can trust Jesus is risen. I I believe in a room this size with this many people, there's probably one or two. Understand today, we've only looked at one gospel. We've only looked at one of the four histories of Jesus' life and recounting of his resurrection. We haven't even looked at the rest of the biblical and historical evidence for the resurrection. That's for another time. But consider today, in light of what we've seen in Luke 24... The great faith that it takes not to believe Christ is dead, but the great faith that it takes to doubt it. Could it be today that the only reason you still doubt the resurrection of Jesus is because somewhere, 
deep down, you know that if you do believe that Jesus is risen, that you have to believe the rest of the, the, rest of the gospel is true too? Could it be that you, you, you continue to doubt, you don't believe in Jesus because you don't want the rest of it to be true? And because everything Jesus said hangs on his resurrection, if he really is raised, then everything else he, he said is true too. It's true for you. If Christ is risen, then it's true that God has made you and loves you and he's designed your soul to know him and to love him and to worship him. It's likewise true that all of us have rebelled against his goodness. We have what the Bible calls sinned. And because we've sinned, because we've rebelled against God's goodness and good design, we've rebelled against a perfectly sinless God, we deserve his punishment for our sin. Crimes deserve punishment. And to rebel against God deserves godly punishment. Every one of us. The Bible tells us that this punishment is death and eternal separation from God. If the bad news of your sin and my sin is true, you're going to want some good news. The bad news is so bad, you're going to want some good news. And the good news is this. The gospel is this. That God in his love for us sent his son Jesus to be born of a virgin. To live the sinless life that you can't live, that I can't live. To go to the cross and to there pay the penalty for our sin, which is death. And he was raised from the dead on the third day to give us the promise of eternal life. As we are raised from the dead one day too. Non-believing friend, you who are here that don't yet trust Jesus. Or you're on the fence. If there's good reason to believe that Christ has been raised. And if you can believe that Christ has been raised. You can believe the rest of the gospel as well. And let me say that it is eternally good for your soul to believe the rest of the gospel as well. It is not God's desire that you be separated from him forever. It is God's desire that you know him and love him and worship him. But the only way you can do that is to have your sin problem fixed. Christ has done that for us on the cross. He paid the full penalty for your sin and for mine. And he was really raised in order to prove that he is Lord over life and death. That he is victor over sin. And that in his name and by faith in him, we can have victory over those things as well. If you can believe Christ was raised from the dead, you can believe the rest of the gospel. And if you can believe the rest of the gospel, I don't know any reason why you wouldn't want to give your life to it. Why you wouldn't want to give your life to a God who sent his son to give his life for yours. That's a good God to believe. That's a good God to trust. And Jesus is a risen Savior that we can worship and have good reason to believe will return for us one day to raise us in the same way, never to die again. Friend, if that's you today, you don't trust Jesus, but you want to, uh, we invite you to do that today. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and the praise team is going to have a, a song time which we can respond to what we've seen and heard from God's word. I'll be standing here at the front. Brother John Lodat will be standing here at the front. We'll have a couple of you.